Our Father, we are so grateful this morning that we are able to to gather together your people. Um, this group of people, the church on Randall Place is, is, is not this building, but we gather in this building at this location to lift up your holy name and to give you praise and honor and glory and adoration and all of these things that, that are yours. So here we are, Lord God. We thank you that we are able to come together and we are able to sing as a congregation that we hear one another's voices and that we encourage one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that we can pray and, and uh, confess our sins to you, Lord God, and that we can hear your word declared. I pray, Father God, that this would be a gospel-saturated church and that you would be honored in all that we do. And so, Lord God, uh, I pray that you would enable me to... Share your word, Father God. It's humbling because your word is so powerful and it comes from you and you've entrusted me at this time with with it, Lord God. It is so valuable. I, In so many ways, I, I fear damaging what is so precious. So I pray, Father God, that I've done a good job guided by your spirit. And I pray, Father God, also that we would hear that the hearers, Lord God, the listeners would not be complacent and so disregard your word that is so valuable. So help us, Lord God, to continue our time of worship in hearing the word of God. Amen. There are certain events that have occurred in history that literally change the course of history. Just a couple of... uh, couple of examples. I would say that the rise and the conquest of Alexander the Great literally changed the course of history. After all, today, you and I are still influenced by Alexander the Great. The things he did and the culture that he propagated were so influential that you and I today, thousands of years later, are still influenced by Alexander the Great. Another one, the Protestant Reformation, literally changed the course of history. We are not the same people that we were um, prior to the Protestant Reformation. The American Revolution literally had an impact on the whole world, certainly had an impact on you and me, but it changed the course of history. Nations are no longer the same because of the American Revolution. So when we look around the world, there are certain events that are turning points. They literally change history. When we look at what we might call redemptive history, that is God's work of redemption, bringing about um, his redemption in his son, Jesus Christ, there are very significant turning points I would put forth to you, and I certainly I won't. Um, This will not be an exhaustive list, but I would certainly, thank you, I would certainly put forth to you, the uh, the covenant that God, the call and covenant that God made with Abram. Abram, get up and go to the place that I will show you. And you will be a great nation. It is through this man that God created a nation. Israel, Jews, did not exist until Abram came along. Literally altered the course of, by God's own hand, but altered the course of redemptive history. I would say the giving of the law at Sinai 
altered the course of redemptive history. I bring all that up because our text today is, we we might title it the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist or Passover or one of those events. But I call it a turning point because literally the course of history changed. This is, I don't want to build this up beyond what it needs to be built up. I mean, it's God's word, so I don't know that we can overbuild it. But literally, history, this is a turning point in history. And so I want to make sure that we understand this great turning point. This is a time where shadow comes to substance, where the old becomes the new. So let me give you a little bit of a setting where we're going to be be at. Remember, this is Thursday night. Crucifixion looms. Jesus is going to die on Friday. Thursday, this is Thursday. The crucifixion, the cross, the shadow of the cross is right in front of Christ. The death of, but I want you to understand that we need to keep in mind that the death of Jesus Christ is not the end of his life. The death of Jesus Christ is the goal of his life. It was the purpose of his life. This is why he came. So keep that in mind. I think that's going to be really crucial. So Thursday, they're they're going to get ready to celebrate a holiday. And on Friday, Jesus will bear the wrath of God for our sins. So if you will, follow along with me as I read this, our passage of text today in Luke chapter 22. I'll begin with verse 7, and we will go through verse 23. Listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, this cup that is poured out, For you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. So this first part centers around the Passover. And... um, Kids, if you're looking at your little green sheet, there is a, a holiday. Um, what holiday are the, um, is Jesus celebrating with his disciples? 
and that is the Passover. And one of the key aspects of the Passover would have been the Passover lamb. I think it's really interesting how, uh, I believe Luke is drawing this distinction that as they prepare the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb is being prepared. Don't miss that. The disciples go to prepare a Passover lamb, a physical, like a lamb, lamb, four legs and wool. But the true Passover lamb is being prepared in their midst. And I think Luke wants to make sure we understand that. And as we go through this, we're going to see that the preparation of the Passover by the disciples is not so much preparation by the disciples, but it's preparation for the disciples because Jesus is going to um, prepare them for something magnificent that is going to happen. So here we even begin to see shadows, the shadows of the old covenant law becoming substance fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That lamb that represented um, the blood spilled to um, uh, that the, the death angel would pass over and not take the life of those who, who obey the Lord. So Jesus is being prepared as the Passover lamb who will take away the sin of the world. I do find it interesting um, that so much time is spent on the preparation of the Passover. I mean, really, when you look at um, the the actual Passover meal, very little is written about it, but quite a bit is written about the preparation. I do find it interesting to think about that. What I want us to understand is here we are. Jesus is at the end of his life. In a few hours, he is going to be betrayed. He is going to suffer. He is going to be abandoned. And he is going to die for the sins of his people. And here he is saying, we must prepare and celebrate the Passover. There are a couple of reasons for this, but the one I'd really like to to focus on today is that this is what a good observant Jew would do. And Jesus is an observant Jew. In fact, Jesus follows the law exactly. Even with the cross looming, he does not violate the law. Jesus, as an observant Jew, we learn, fulfills all righteousness, even in the shadow of the cross. That is, he's going to bear the sins of the people, but he also then becomes a source of righteousness. We talk about this quite a bit in this church, but let me remind you that Jesus didn't only die for your sins, Jesus lived for your righteousness. Do not miss that second aspect because we talk about Jesus dying for our sins. That is, Jesus takes our sins. That is so crucial. It is so important that Christ died for your sin. Here's the thing. Now you're sinless. But you're not righteous. How do you become righteous? You are sinless because your sin got imputed or credited to Jesus' account. Jesus bore God's wrath on your behalf. Great. You are without sin, but you are not righteous. How do you become righteous? Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, and the Bible talks about how his righteousness is credited to your account. We, this is a fancy term. We call it double imputation. What's the double imputation? The double imputation is that your sin got imputed or credited to Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness 
gets credited to your account. So you are now not only without sin, but you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And Jesus does this by fulfilling the law perfectly. He can miss this Passover meal and he has not fulfilled the law perfectly and you would be without sin, but you'd still be unrighteous without God. And Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. And so as the cross looms, Jesus is going to finish. He's still thinking about you and me and his disciples and what his mission is. He does not say, well, I'm going to die anyway so I can just coast until it's time to suffer. And so I think it's important that we note this idea of Jesus dying for our sins. Our sins are cast upon Jesus and the righteousness of Christ is being credited to us. And so now we will stand, those who are in Christ will stand before the Lord without sin and with the righteousness of Christ. Christ is your righteousness. Your good works are not your righteousness. Where did Christ is your righteousness. So, the other thing that I think is really interesting in this first pass, in this first part, is um, how Jesus is in control of these events. I don't think we can read very far in verses seven through thirteen without noticing the um, the idea that there's quite a bit of secrecy going on. Did you notice that? Did you did you pick that up as you were reading the secrecy? Nobody knows what's going on in this event. He's, in fact, he tells Peter and John, he says, "Now go into the city, and." Prepare the Passover meal. Well, the next question is, okay, great. There's like hundreds of thousands of people in town. Every hotel, every restaurant, every banquet room, every house is filled. Where in the world are we going to go to prepare the Passover? Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to see a guy carrying a water jar. When you see him, follow him to his house and tell the master of the house, the teacher wants to have Passover is the room ready. Now, the, this certainly stands out. Most um, students of, of the Bible will, will be quick to tell you that in that day and age, men generally did not carry water pots. Women did. Men carried little leather bags of, for, for water. Uh, so these were probably jars for ceremonial washing. But nevertheless, the fact that there's a man carrying a water jar... Um, stood out and said, oh, look at that. That's something unique. And they go and they follow this man. But here's the, the interesting thing, or at least it's interesting to me, is the purpose behind the secrecy. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, hey, we're going to all go into town and we're going to meet at such and such a house and man, we're going to have, a, have our dinner there. He tells Peter and John, go and do this. And um, here's the thing. Don't forget Jesus has betrayed, I'm sorry, Judas has betrayed Jesus. Judas has already gone to the priests, and they are looking for an opportune time in which to arrest Jesus. Can you think of a better time than right during a meal? Everybody in Jerusalem, everybody is holed up in their house celebrating Passover. Nobody's on the streets. Nobody is anywhere to be found. They're all engaged in one thing, celebrating the Passover. What a perfect time to go and arrest Jesus. But Jesus does not succumb to the time frames of men. The sacrifice of Christ will be on his terms and his alone. So 
So this would be a perfect time for an arrest. But you need to understand that the religious leaders, not the religious leaders, not Judas, not even Satan, have control over the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is the one who determines this, and he is the one who lays down his life. He will be the one who takes it up again. And besides that, there's so much to do. I mean, imagine you have one night left. Just think, the night before you go on vacation, you've got an early flight in the morning. Man, I've got so many things I've got to do. I've got to make sure that, you know, I've got notes for, the, for pet care and watering house plants and all of these things that need to be done. I've got a lot to do. Jesus has one more night, a few more hours, and he's preparing the disciples. Preparing the disciples for his departure. So, a couple things he's going to be doing. He's going to be celebrating the Passover. He's going to be instituting the Lord's Supper. He washes, this is the time when he washes the feet of the disciple. This is where we, he, he gives what is often referred to as the upper room discourse. And you see this in John 13 through 16. This is one of the most um, rich passages of text. This is the passage, this is the time where Jesus talks about where I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes into the Father but through me. That's in the upper room discourse. This is John chapter 13 through 16. The bulk of it is about the Holy Spirit. This is the most comprehensive teaching we have on the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. Upper room discourse before his arrest. This is where Jesus talks about I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can do nothing without me. All of this is and this upper room discourse that goes forth um, prior to his arrest. And so Jesus is in control of these events. Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going to be taken um, to trial, and he's going to be crucified the next day, but this is all on Jesus' terms. And so Judas has no idea what is going on. He has no idea. He cannot slip away to go tell the religious leaders, hey, we're having dinner at so-and-so's house. Tonight would be a really good night. The other great thing about this particular section is that when he went and when the disciples went and did what Jesus said, it says, and they found it just as he had told them. It's almost like Jesus had it planned. This should give his disciples and it should give you and I great confidence. In other words, Jesus has gone before them and arranged all the details. Now, there's a lot of discussion amongst Bible students whether or not this was some sort of supernatural understanding or whether Jesus actually went and made preparations, met with somebody saying, hey, you know, we're going to have dinner at your house. We can discuss that at some other point. I don't think it really affects this point. The point is, is Jesus goes ahead of his people and makes certain, makes sure all of the arrangements are in place so that when he calls his disciples to do something, they can go with confidence knowing that Jesus has already gone ahead of them. I think that's a great comfort because God oftentimes calls us to do various things and we wonder, I don't know, is it going to work? What's going to happen? I don't Because the disciples didn't really know. They just said, go into a city, find a guy carrying a, a, a jar of water and follow him to a house and say to the, the, the owner of the house, the master of the house, hey, the teacher wants to have dinner here and he's going to show you an upper room. Prepare it there. 
um, Jesus, can you give me a little more detail? Nope. Do what I said. I've already gone before you. I've already taken care of all the arrangements. You just need to do what I've told you to do and I will make certain, I will go before you and make all of the arrangements. And this should be helpful to us when God is calling us. Maybe we're sitting somewhere and we're like, you know, I really need to share the gospel with such and such a person. But what are they going to say? What would I say? And all of these things, Jesus is saying, I've already gone before you. I've called you to do certain things, but I've already gone in front of you and made arrangements. Do what I've called you to do. God has gifted every single Christian with some sort of spiritual gift. To edify and build up the saints. And you're going, well, I'm not really qualified. I don't have experience. Or I, what would happen if this? Understand this. God has already made arrangements. Do what he's called you to do and believe that God has already made arrangements. That doesn't mean that if you share the gospel, everybody, the revival is going to break out. I'm just asking you, do what God tells you to do. He's already made arrangements. I was talking to a, uh, a leader in our town this week who's a believer. And one of the things he said to me, he says, man, it's just amazing. I get so worked up and I get so worried about things. And, and I just don't know how they're going to work out. And I know there's Christians praying for me and believers uh, petitioning the throne of God on my behalf but I get still worked up and I just don't know how things are going to work out. And then lo and behold, they work out without me even getting involved. In fact, sometimes I don't even do anything. They just solve themselves. God has gone before us. He has prepared the way. Christ has gone before his people and prepared the way. So this is the Passover meal. That uh, This is a preparation of the Passover. And then we come to the section with that deals with the, the Last Supper. We see this in beginning in verse 14. The preparations are complete. And so now Luke actually takes us to the actual meal. And this is an interesting phrase. Jesus says this, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. Let me go back and just give you some of the emphasis. The, the emphasis there, literally this would read this, I have desired with desire. So the way you make an emphasis in... Uh, in Greek, is you just double the term. So, I de- with desire, I desire. In other words, I exceedingly desire. This is a great passion that Jesus has. He, I desire with desire to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. And I just want to point out how this scene is marked by Jesus' great love for his own. He desires this event. I desire to eat this Passover. I'm ready to, I'm getting ready to die. But before I do, I really, really want to eat this Passover with you. Man, what an awesome thought. Before the most heinous crime in the universe is committed, Jesus says, you know, I really, really want to talk with you and and eat this meal with you. And so... The disciples are clueless regarding the upcoming events. And Jesus knows um, that in a few hours, he will begin suffering on their behalf. He also knows this. He also knows that they're going to betray him, deny him, and abandon him. I desire to eat this meal with you. 
Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, I desire to eat this meal with you before I suffer. All of y'all are going to abandon me. You're all going to run away. I desire to eat this meal with you before I suffer. What an incredible expression of love towards his people. And I do this before I suffer. My death is no accident. I will lay down my life for your sin. Your abandonment, I'm going to suffer for it. And I want to eat this meal with you. It's going to point to something. It's going to point to my laying down my life for you. I want to eat this Passover with you, which recalls God's great deliverance. Remember, Passover recalls God's great deliverance with those um, great deliverance of, of, of God's people. And now Jesus says, I want to eat this meal with you, really with the people who are going to be the first recipients of his sacrifice. They're going to be the first ones who receive forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ. Wow. I want to eat this with you. And there's a lot going on here, and I'm not going to spend great detail dealing with with all of the events around the Passover meal, but I do want to um, take note of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. This is a turning point. Because the old is becoming new. Because Jesus is going to take the Passover meal and completely reinterpret it and say it's now something completely different. What was a shadow is now reality. And he begins with this. This is my body. See, in the middle of the Passover meal, Jesus now does something before that had never been done in the nearly 1,500 years of Passover history. For 1,440 years, the Passover was celebrated, and it was pretty much celebrated in the exact same way. There were some some changes and a few little modifications here and there, but they were always celebrated the same way. And Jesus now gets up, and he radically changes the Passover meal. You see, something new is happening. Something big is happening. Because the Old Covenant, what the Passover used to point back to. That old covenant is fading away and something new is coming. That old covenant with its ceremonies, with the temple, with the Holy of Holies, with lambs and bulls and goats, with the priesthood, that's all changing. There's going to be a new sacrifice and it is not a lamb or a bull or a goat. It is Jesus Christ. There will be a new priesthood, but it is not some elite status. It is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be called priests of the Most High God. Shadows are waning. The substance is coming. All these ceremonies pointed to the reality and the reality has now come. And he takes now the bread and he says, this is my body. And when he does this, the disciples' minds would have raced to the bread of affliction that was celebrated in the Passover meal. The bread of affliction pointed back. It was a symbolic pointing back to the affliction that their forefathers suffered under the hard hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And the bread of affliction reminded people our forefathers suffered under a cruel oppressor. And Jesus gets up and they're ready for this is the bread of affliction that reminds us of our forefathers suffering in Egypt and he doesn't go there. Instead, this is not the bread of affliction. This is my body. This is a radical change. This is a turning point. History is changing at this moment. 
It was a reminder of affliction. And now he's saying, remember my affliction on your behalf. Jesus gives the symbols of Passover new meaning. And so just as the bread of affliction symbolized something else, so the bread of the Lord's Supper is also symbolic. This is why we don't say that the bread of the Lord's Supper actually becomes the body of the Lord or anything because Jesus is in their midst and he says, this is my body. And he's standing there and he's holding up bread. Nobody thought for a moment that this is actually the flesh of Jesus Christ. They all knew that's bread. And it's pointing back, just like the Passover bread pointed back to a reality. This is pointing to something else. It is not, it is a symbolic thing. And so, this is my body. Notice this. This is my body given for you. Something really struck me and convicted me. I wasn't going to say this, but something really struck me uh, when I read this because sometimes I've read, this is my body broken for you and I've probably talked about that. This is my body given for you. None of his bones were broken. This is my body given for you. Do you see the substitutionary nature of the atonement? The substitutionary nature of Christ. In other words, an innocent victim dies on behalf of the guilty. Jesus is utterly and completely innocent, but he is going to take your place. This is my body. It is given for you. It's an amazing truth. And so he gives these symbols new meaning. Certainly when we think about this is my body given for you, it brings us back to Isaiah chapter 53. It speaks of the suffering servant who would to come. Listen to this. He was despised and rejected by men. This is my body. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is my body. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is my body given for you. Surely he's borne our griefs. This is my body and carried our sorrows. This is my body. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is my body given for you. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is my body. Upon him, the chastisement that was that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. This is my body and we like sheep have gone astray. This is my body. We have turned every one to his own way. This is my body given for you and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is my body given for you. Do you understand what he is saying? This is, this is not the bread of affliction. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is my body and I am giving it for your benefit. Do this in remembrance of me. We're not looking at Exodus out of Egypt anymore. We're looking at Exodus out of the enslavement of sin and I am the one who delivers you. Told you this is a turning point. Utterly history is changing. And he takes the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Well, we've already read this passage of text. It is worth reading it again. This points straight back to Jeremiah chapter 31, 34. About a new covenant. Jesus is saying, this cup is not talking about some some bull or a goat or a sheep that was slain. We're talking about my blood shed 
for the forgiveness of sin. Look at this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is not what I'm not talking about Egypt anymore. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the cup of the new covenant that assures you, that symbolizes that that declares to you your sins are forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, substitute. There's a substitute. Somebody is taking your place. And the only one who could take your place is the sinless Lamb of God. The one who kept God's law perfectly. The Lord's Supper has a past and a future and a present view. The past, of course, looks back to the cross. This is why we're told to remember. Remember it. The future, there's this anticipation. Jesus talks about, I won't drink this or I won't eat this with you until I eat it anew with you in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there is a guaranteed future element to what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh, this isn't the end. This is not the end. There is coming a day when I am going to bring my kingdom in all of its fullness and you and I, there will be a banquet. And there is a present reality that is, Jesus lives. He dwells among his people and present enjoyment and blessing are found in being in his presence. The way we're going to conclude our message today is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, It just doesn't seem right to do that message and then say bye. It seems like we should celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What I'm going to ask is I'm going to ask our elders and... um, I think we have one other who are going to come forward. We're going to distribute the elements. Normally we ask you guys to come forward uh, and receive the elements. If you are a follower of Christ, the Lord's Supper was given to believers. It was given to his church. Um, and so if you are a follower of Christ, we would welcome you to partake with us. Um, if you are not a follower of Christ, we would just ask that you would respect this time and, and refrain um, from that, And here's the other thing. While, while the elements are, are, are being distributed, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to just contemplate where you stand with the Lord. And the reason I say that is because you'll notice I, I didn't talk about the very last part of the text where Jesus talks about the hand of the betrayer and the disciples saying, I wonder who that is. In some of the other parallel passages, the disciples say, is it me? Is it me? There was a real concern. Am I the guilty one? When the elements are being passed, I just want you to think, is it me? 
Is there something, Lord, in my life that is betraying you? And if so, then I'm asking that you would, I know we already had a prayer of confession and we sang a song of assurance and all of that. I'm just asking you, perhaps we can go over that again. And just ask the Lord as as we're receiving the elements, is it me, Lord? Have I betrayed you in some way that I have not acknowledged? And if so, show it to me so that when I take of the bread and I take of the cup, I am doing so in a worthy manner. So, if our um, elders and Harvey to come forward, um, maybe Charlie and Nelson here in the middle and Harvey and Samuel on the sides to, uh, to receive the elements. Um,